If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to read verse 6 through the end of the chapter to verse 15. And I did remember what it was I was going to say. The, uh, this week, um, there was an email that went out <clears throat> from a fake email address that was supposed to look like mine, asking for gift cards from a number of the church members. Uh, this isn't the first time this has happened. It's happened once before, but it seems like they're getting much more crafty in how they do it. Uh, they were able to take my picture off online and put it in the email, which I never do in my emails. And it was two different versions of two different email addresses I have, and they merged them together. Uh, and immediately were asking different questions and personalizing for a few of you. So just know that I do not ever ask for gift cards through an email or a text. And rarely do I ever ask for gift cards. But I do want to say how greatly appreciative I am for all those who offered to give me gift cards. I was tempted, very tempted, but I'm not in need of any gift cards, but uh, it does tie in well with uh, our text this morning of Paul's uh, desire to see the body of Christ give to those who are in need. I'm not currently in need, but thank you for offering, um, but uh, that is uh, the the strain of the text this morning. But on a side note, just for protecting uh, my flock financially in future ways, though, uh, Keith asked me to look up on my email address to see if it had been uh, tampered with in some way, and uh, you were able to look up online in your email addresses to see how many different places in the world have tried to get into your email account, and uh, it's pretty shocking. Thankfully, no one got into my particular account, on, at least not in the ones, my email addresses. But every three hours, someone from a different part of the world is trying to get into my email account. Every three hours. Egypt, China, Russia, every three hours. Look, you, you ought to go look it up. It's really crazy. So anyway, with that being said, especially some of our seniors in the church who are not used to the, the pace at which technology is changing, I wouldn't be surprised if the next couple years they're, they're taking my voice from online and getting a phone call asking for gift cards. Know that I will not do that either. Or anyone else from this church for that matter. Know that AI is is moving very quickly. Be very careful. If I need anything, I will ask you personally face-to-face. Just know that. And the church the same way. We won't be doing that. So just protection-wise, don't listen to... There's just way too much out there. Let's hear the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray together. 
Father, we ask uh, that you would give us this wisdom from heaven, Lord, that not only we would understand it, but that we would appropriate it, that we would find uh, the truth in it, that by faith we would grasp it and seek to walk in it by faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, a vision from heaven, that we would know the mindset of Christ, that we would know the, the blessings that are at your right hand, and that we would enter into them willingly, gladly, and cheerfully, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we did an educational illustration. I figured I'd start with a different one, more oriented toward college students, I guess you could say this week. Economics was one of the subjects that I studied my first year in college before I declared my major in ancient history. As some of you know, economics literally means the law of the house. And most people think of it probably as the law of the marketplace, how resources such as land, labor, and capital are used to meet the needs and the demands of society, if you will. But at the university today, generally you're going to look at economics from one of two perspectives, either from the macro perspective or the micro perspective, either from the, the worldwide economy, from everything that goes on within that house, or from the micro perspective, the different agents that are working within particular markets, if you will. But generally, at the university level, you're not going to look at it from what I might call the sumo-economic level, which instead of looking at it from within the marketplace, you're looking at it from the perspective of the owner of the marketplace, the person who actually runs the whole house, who is the owner of the household. So you might call it spiritual economics. You might refer to it as heavenly economics. But usually at the university, you're only looking at it from the earthly or materialistic perspective alone. Sort of like uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, Solomon and his attempts to find wisdom is only looking at everything from the perspective of what? Under the sun. He's not looking at it from the heavenly perspective. And most, most subjects that we consider in school, are, we're only looking at it from the earthly perspective, not from the one who has set these things in their courses. And so there, there are a few fundamental rules from the master's perspective, the owner's perspective, that we don't get in our typical education. So I want us to consider some of those things and how that affects not only our willingness to give and our charitableness as a whole, but also our understanding of the blessings of God. Because I, I don't think we'll get it if we look at it mainly from the earthly perspective of economics. But it, it's interesting. It, at one time, the words affluence, wealth, and prosperity were all not related to money. They were not monetarily uh, superimposed, if you will, uh, but rather the word affluence literally means an abundant flow of something, of, of anything. It doesn't have to be money per se, but of anything. You could say someone has spiritual affluence or they have social affluence, not necessarily monetary affluence. In the same way, the word wealth originally is derived from the word wheel or wellness. If, if you would to ask a question in previous times, you, someone might say, well, how are you doing today? Well, I'm very wealthy, thank you. And they wouldn't have any pretentiousness about it. And they, they certainly wouldn't uh, be thinking of mon monetary wealth alone. In the same way, the word prosperity literally means to give hope to, to make one happy. And that could be a thousand different ways that you have hope and have happiness, not necessarily through money. It's a shame, really, that in the United States today we automatically think of money when we hear these words because everything is tied to a materialistic perspective. But the Scripture doesn't see it that way. In fact, um, I've shared uh, when we were doing our devotions through the book of Genesis, 
Particularly in the life of Joseph, I, I pointed out in one of the devotions three times in which the word prosperity is used of Joseph and has nothing to do with money. Uh, all three times, it's referred to, in fact, the, the word in the Greek, this, which is the, the Septuagint, is the Greek version of the Old Testament Hebrew, right? In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it uses the word oikonomos, which is obviously related to the word economy to refer to Joseph as the steward over a house, right? So in the beginning, Joseph was the oikonomos over the house of Potiphar as a slave. Then later on, he's the oikonomos or the steward over the house of the prison, right? And then lastly, toward the end of the story, he is the oikonomos over the house of Pharaoh. So over the whole kingdom, he is now the steward of such a large uh, market, if you will. And in each case, though, the Scripture says he was prosperous as a steward. Now, obviously, as a slave, he's not prosper- full of prosperity in terms of money. He's a slave. He doesn't own anything. It's all owned by the master. He's just using whatever he has to make it better. He's, he's causing blessings to flow to the master of the household. In the same way, uh, as a prisoner, he doesn't own anything. He's not... Uh, monetarily prosperous, but prosperous in a lot of other ways. In each case, what happens is both the owner of the house as well as the other subjects within the house are blessed because he's blessing them through his own prosperity. His prosperity is affecting other people's prosperity. And as a result, the blessing of God comes upon all those that are in contact with him. Well, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is telling the materially wealthy Christians in Corinth how to be prosperous in God's economy, in God's household, right? Although there are some similarities between what we would normally think of as micro, macroeconomics and God's uh, view of the household, there are certain things that are more unique that stick out in some way. So I want to talk about that this morning. To begin with, though, we must understand that because God has created all things, He is by right the owner of all things, right? So, Think of copyrights, right? He made it all, so he's got the copyright upon every single aspect of creation. It's all his. He owns it all. And by that right, he also has the authority over it all. Now, what that means is not a single person here in this room or anywhere else in the world technically owns anything. It's all owned by him. Nevertheless, each person is called to be a steward, an oikonomos, in God's household. So as a result, each of us have received an inheritance and talents to build up his house to care for his property, which is his creation. As you know, though, Adam and Eve didn't faithfully discharge their duties as God's stewards in the Garden of Eden. And as a result, uh, believing the lie of Satan, they challenged God as the owner of the house, wanted to be the owner themselves. They wanted to be the king. They wanted to be the ruler. And as a result of the curse, for the first time, on earth, labor became a burden. For the first time, scarcity became the rule. And for the first time, the law of diminishing returns becomes the norm. This, what we, what we observe within our market economy today is all as the result of the fall. The law of supply and demand only makes sense in consequence of the fall. Prior to that, there was no such law in place because you pretty much had whatever you needed. But now under this current reign of sin, if you will, demand is limitless and the supply is greatly restricted because there's never going to be enough to go around. As you know, in heaven, there are no sticker prices, though, right? 
We get this concept. God says to the saints in Isaiah 55, if you remember, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. There was no sense of a need for a price because the supply is limitless. And the demand was ordinary. But now the demand is limitless and the supply is much less than ordinary. As a result of the fall, a price is put on everything. Early on in human history, as a result, a division of labor occurs. You see this in Cain's lineage from the very beginning. Men are beginning to take on different tasks in order to try to bring some good for the society because they can't all do enough work to supply enough for everybody to have and to do. And as a result, you also see immediately... Uh, in this competition for the goods of this earth, you see theft and murder abound. It rains, right? So by the time the flood comes on the earth, it's as a result of there's no governance. There's no law. There's, there's no way of protecting what you would normally refer to as the rights of life, liberty, and property. There's no government to ensure that the supply of goods is, is continuing to increase and the demands are kept in check. That's the world in which we live the world in which we live and move and and have our being. But it's not the only world we're a part of, and that's what we need to remember as Christians. Yes, you you, you understand, I think most of us understand some aspect of economics even without having taken a class on it. But in God's household, there is another uh, avenue, if you will, that, that we might not have considered. Through the miracle of regeneration, we all, as believers, have been born again into a new kingdom. And as a result, we're also heirs and co-heirs with Christ of a great inheritance. In fact, what we are promised is not just a small parcel of land in the Middle East, but we're promised to inherit what? The whole earth, the Scripture says. All of it will be ours as we are good stewards of God's creation. Already, we have access to the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. We also have access to the God who made the thousand hills on which a cattle stand, right? And everything else additionally. Consequently, God doesn't need anything from us. You need to know that more than anything else. God owns it all. Therefore, he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need cows. He doesn't need bulls, money, or anything else. Nevertheless, as his redeemed creatures in Christ Jesus, he once again restores our rightful role as stewards over his creation. Once again, delegating to us those rights and responsibilities so that we might give glory to him that his house can expand, his kingdom can expand, and he receives more and more glory as a result. So he gives us a a, a parcel, an inheritance, a, a small portion of all that he owns, and he gives us many talents that we might use those talents to make his house glorious. That's what that's what the call is upon us. That's the big picture for what Paul is about to explain in our text this morning. So again, Paul's writing to some very wealthy Christians in Corinth. Um, Again, Corinth is a very significant city, a very important, uh, great location of a city, significant maritime, mercantile power. They have it all. Um, A very great place uh, to make wealth quickly. But when, if you remember, they heard about the dire straits of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, They wanted to give a gift monetarily to help their brothers and sisters in need. But again, they had not yet given these gifts, so Paul is writing this passage to encourage them to fulfill their commitments of what they said they were going to give. So by doing that, though, now he is is explaining to them a little bit further something about God's economy. And I want to talk about 
the three principles, you might call them laws, if you will, from God's perspective over the economy, why giving works uh, in our Christian calling. So the first one is this. He speaks of a universal law of sowing and reaping. Second, he refers to what you might call the law of increasing returns. And third, um, we might call it the law of generosity's revenues. So let's, um, let's look at these in their turn. First, the law of sowing and reaping. Uh, the, the law is really more of a proverb. Uh, we hear it often throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament as well as the New, where Scripture is applying the same principle to each one of these scenarios. If you sow one kind of crop, you're going to reap that kind of crop, right? You shouldn't expect that if you grow wheat that somehow you're going to get oats or, or vice versa. You're going to get what you've sown. So we have a number of passages in Scripture Solomon says, Proverbs 22, verse 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. It's what you ought to expect. You've sowed something evil, you're going to get something evil. Hosea 8, verse 7, the Lord says, they sowed the wind, therefore they shall reap the whirlwind. Now, it's a little bit more intense, but still the same of the same nature. What they sowed, they're going to get evil in return. Same way what uh, David read earlier, from Psalm 126, they sow in tears of repentance. What are you going to get? Joy. If you don't repent, what are you going to get? Bitterness. And much more conflict in all the things that go with it. So Galatians 6 makes this point very plainly. Paul says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If you sow evil, you reap evil. You sow good, you reap good. So Paul, in that passage, says, therefore, let us do good to everyone as we have opportunity. You sow good, you'll get good. But in our passage this morning, Paul is saying a little bit more than that. He's not just saying you sow, you reap what you sow, but rather the more you sow of something, whether it's good or bad, the more you'll reap, right? So he's, now he's talking about quantity as opposed to quality. He's saying, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, in this instance, Paul solely has the good seed in mind, so keep that in mind. We're not talking about evil seed at all. Now, just the good seed of Christian charity, of Christian giving. It's just the more you sow, the more you'll reap. So in this instance, we're sort of meant to imagine a man going out like the parable of the sower, right? He's going out and he's sowing seed. He's got a bag full of seed, and there's sort of one or two approaches that he could take in how he distributes that seed, right? On the one hand, he could... Take out one or two seeds at a time and go through each, each line and there's one for you and there's, there's one for you and there's, you know, there's a little bit here, but always restricting, always measuring very carefully. You know, sometimes you go to certain buffet restaurants and there are certain restaurants that like give you like one or two pieces of chicken and they give you no more. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't. Anyway, very restrictive. Maybe I eat too much. But very restrictive. They don't want you to have any more than the measured amount. Now, on the other hand, the sower could just go out, and he takes his hand in his bag, and he just whips it out full of grain, full of seed, and just throws it freely wherever his foot lands, right? Wherever he goes, he's, he's going to be throwing seed. And Paul's saying the person who measures out each seed very carefully and in small amounts is going to receive a very small harvest. Makes sense, right? This is not rocket science. Uh, on the other hand, the person who, who sows bountifully is going to reap a, a, a great harvest of good. Now, if we, if we solely follow the law of supply and demand, we'll be tempted to hoard our own supply and be deaf to our brother's demands. That's, that's just common nature. We, we know how this works. 
And, and as a result, we'll put a very high price on the goods that we have and a very low price on our brothers because we realize, okay, well, I'm going to lose in this, in, this, in this deal, if you will. Uh, but if we bountifully spread our seed and our wealth, God is promising to receive a bountiful harvest. Now, literally, the, the word that he uses in the Greek for the word bountiful is blessing. He says, if you sow blessings, you will receive blessings. In, in accordance with the amount that you have blessed, you will be blessed in return. Now, the question is, what kind of blessings is Paul referring to here? Well, one of the blessings he mentions is in verse 8. Take a look there. Verse 8. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, basically, you'll have a sufficiency in all things and at all times. So somehow, even with the loss that has accrued to you because of what you've given away, somehow God is going to give you in the same measure or even more a supply in, in some other blessing. And uh, I think many of you have experienced this in, in different ways, right? Um, Doug Kelly is a, a pastor and professor from the South, from the same state of North Carolina as me. And in one case, he, he tells the story of a, of a fellow minister in Mississippi who had a very large family. I want to say they had you know, nine kids, something like that. And uh, they, were, they didn't have a lot of money, so they were often in dire straits in one, one, one sense or another. One particularly hard year, his wife surprised him with a request right before Christmas asking if they could write an extra check to some missionaries overseas that had lost uh, loved ones and had, lost some other, had some sense of loss. So there are four different missionaries, and she wanted him to send a check to each one of those four missionaries. And he was tallying up in his head. He said, wife, I think that's a great idea. However, uh, you know, I just paid all the bills for the month, and we have just enough left to buy groceries. If I write these checks as you're asking, are you willing to forgo eating, <laughs> you know, in that regard? And, uh, and she reminded him, she said, well, we have, we have a little bit of extra potatoes and rice in the pantry. I think we can make it. Go ahead and write the checks. And so he does, and, you know, she leaves it up to him to determine the amount. He writes the check, and I don't know if it's paltry per se, but, it, it, you know, meager amount that he writes for each one of them, but something, he gives something to it, hoping that he'll still be able to eat at the end of the, the month. Well, he, he goes to work that morning. When he comes back, um, his wife is gone, but has left a note on an envelope that had come in the mail. And as you probably have heard stories similar to this one in that regard, uh, she says, you know, just on the, on the top in a little post-it note, see how the Lord has provided. And he opens the envelope, and there's a little letter inside. And, and there's a check inside as well. And the check is for exactly 100 times the amount of the checks that he wrote. 100 times. And uh, Doug Kelly tells us that the minister had this sinful thought in reply. He said, what if I had given more? Right? In, in fact, that's the danger of this type of teaching. People automatically have used this wrongly. And sometimes you might refer to it as the health and wealth gospel. They think, well, you, know, you sow more seed, God's going to make you more rich. God's going to... Uh, uh, abundantly bless you with riches beyond your wildest belief just as long as you give and make sure you give it this number to this person so I can get a better jet and whatever else, right? You know how it works. But that's not at all what Paul's saying. God is not promising to make Christians wealthy if they give. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense the fact that the Macedonians had given so much already sacrificially to the Lord and they're still poor. Didn't make them rich, right? 
In fact, uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount doesn't make sense if he says, blessed are the poor, if everyone's supposed to be rich. just doesn't make sense. That's not what he's saying. And so now we need to look at the second law uh, to go a little bit further into this, to understand what is Paul saying. So the second law is the law of increasing returns. Now, if we look at verse 8 again, finish reading the verse that I started with, there Paul says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, what? You may abound in every good work. So the abounding grace that is promised to each Christian who gives is given for this reason, so that he might abound more in good work. Not so that he can sit in the lap of luxury, not that he can buy a big boat and a whatever, you know, private plane or whatever it is. But, but look, look again at verse 11. There Paul says, you will be enriched in every way. Why? So you can be generous in every way. The law of increasing returns is this. The more you sow, the more you'll be blessed, so the more you can sow. Does that make sense? It's not. So you give so that you can get more. So even what the minister was thinking in his head was, I could have had a whole lot more money if I would just given more. That's not the right mindset. Think of it from this perspective. The, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. You know that one, right? Uh, there are three men that uh, their master went away for a time, and he left each of them a certain amount of talents to invest for the sake of his property, right? He gave five talents to the first guy, two talents to the second, one talent to the third. The first guy who had five talents immediately went out and made some trades and brought back a return. Now he had ten talents to show his master when he returned. The guy who had two talents did the same. Now he had four but if you remember the third guy who had only one talent, he thought that his, his master was a harsh taskmaster, and so he just went and buried the talent in the ground, did nothing with it. And, of course, when the master comes back, you can imagine his, his response. The first two, he's very pleased with. You know, very, he was very proud of them that they were able to make such an investment off of his money. The third one he calls a, a, a lazy, selfish man. He has no desire to do anything uh, for, his, for his master. And then Jesus says this, he says, to everyone who has, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, or the one basically who uses it not, even what he has will be taken away. And immediately, he takes the one talent that the guy had dug up out of the ground and gave it to the guy who now had ten talents because he had invested it wisely. The guy who had the one talent now has no talents, and now obviously he has nothing to show or to please the Lord with. Remember, we don't own the money that is in our possession. We're all economa. We're all stewards, or the word oikonomos. We're stewards over this house that God has given us. Because it's his money, we're called to be good stewards over it so that we can become greater stewards. God gives us more grace that we can become greater stewards. Again, in ordinary economics, our primary focus is, is on the law of diminishing returns. The, the idea is that the more labor I put into something, probably the less profit, the less pleasure I get out of it. But from a heavenly perspective, at least in terms of giving, there's this constant increasing return. The more you give, the more you're blessed, and the more you enjoy the aspect of giving. There's more pleasure in it, if you will. And, and it actually makes sense, because what does Jesus say? He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive, Right? So what's the greatest blessing that God can give you? The blessing to be able to give more. Does that make sense? So if he gives you blessings where you receive more, you're not going to be as blessed. But if he gives you more blessings that you can give more, then you're the highest of blessings. 
That's what you receive. So, so his desire is to bless you so that you can be a better steward because he knows that you've been created to be a steward of God's household, and the best pleasure you can get in this world is by doing that fittingly. But if we don't do it, we, we do it in some other manner, we're going to be not as happy as we think we are. It's going to constantly diminish in our pleasure and diminish in profits. So, as a result, uh, this is the greatest incentive. But it's not the only incentive. So Paul gives us a few others as well, and that's what we're going to talk about in the third law, the law of generosity's revenue. Again, normally we think of opportunity cost. In other words, uh, uh, we have to look at it from the perspective of every choice that we make financially when we choose to do one thing with our money, we lose the opportunity to use it in the same way with something else. Right? We're always thinking, well, what have we lost as a result of using our money? Well, we certainly ought to look at it from that perspective, but also from a, a heavenly perspective, we also need to consider by using the money that we have in order to give to someone else, what other things has it caused to happen as well? What other uh, good revenue has come in as a result. So revenue, basically, literally the word revenue means return. What spiritual returns do I get from this? Is it not just the fact that I can give more? Are there other returns as well? And so uh, God promises, first of all, as we, as we said earlier, that he promises to sufficiently supply us with everything we need at all times in every way. That's what he said before. But in verse 10, he adds this. He promises to increase the harvest of our righteousness. What? That's not a, a normal phrase that we normally think of, but if, if you go back to verse 9, Paul's quoting from Psalm 112, verse 9, which reads this way. He says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, in that, in that passage, he's speaking of the many blessings that are pronounced upon the man who is seeking to do good, that he continues to have this harvest of righteousness. Uh, that is both acknowledged by man as well as by God. It's, it's a harvest everyone can see. It's full of righteousness, right? Now, on the other hand, I could give you this example. I was meditating upon this passage a, a couple weeks ago. In Job chapter 31, Job is defending his honor, his righteousness, before his three friends who are constantly accusing him of some secret sin, right? Uh, that's why you've suffered the way you have. And in that particular case, he gives this defense, if you will. And it's, it's a marvelous defense, one that I don't think any of us would be able to say as well as he, he did and certainly live up to it. He says this, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not been blessed by me and if he is if he's not warmed by the fleece of my sheep, he says, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. What? Now, of course, the way Job is speaking, it's assumed that he means that he doesn't want his shoulder to break and his arms to fall out of its socket, right? So the assumption is that he actually has tried to live up to this calling in terms of righteousness, well, in the same way, Paul is using this passage in Psalm 112 to say that the same God who supplies seed for the sowing also gives this great harvest of righteousness as a result of the good works that we perform. Again, not that, I want to make sure I don't have you confused about this, not that our good works cause us to be righteous. It's the other way around. If someone has been declared to be righteous by the righteousness of Christ, they then begin to act righteously. 
They begin to do righteous things. They begin to do good works. Why did he save us, according to Titus? So that we would be zealous to do good works, that we would do works of righteousness. And as a result, when we sow righteousness, what do we expect? A harvest of righteousness, right? And we expect that because it's the Holy Spirit himself who is moving our hearts to give. And it's the Holy Spirit who's moving us and enabling us with the power to give. And as a result, there's naturally a a harvest of righteousness. So as a result, one of the benefits, one of the revenues, if you will, of giving is that we would see this harvest righteousness, and so would everyone else. Our brothers, our Father, our God, he would all see this. Um, But not only would this righteousness be acknowledged by God and man, but it would be acknowledged by our fellow man to God. This is important. Verse 11, look here. Paul says that the giving of the believers in Corinth would produce thanksgiving to God through Paul and his, co- and his co-workers, and they would also be very grateful for the rich assistance that was provided so they could do more work, more good, if you will. So in other words, this harvest of righteousness not only is acknowledged by man, but is acknowledged by man to God. They're giving thanks for you. Now, do you care about that? Do you care if people give thanks for you? This is considered a revenue in the kingdom of God. It may not be considered a revenue in the earthly kingdom, but in the heavenly kingdom it is. It's a great benefit that other people would actually give thanks to God on your behalf. You remember um, Nehemiah? Remember the book of Nehemiah? How many times he says after he's done some good for the sake of uh, Israel and built up the walls, he keeps saying, Lord, remember what I've done. You remember how many times he says that? It's like six times, I think. Remember what I've done. Not because his righteousness, his salvation is dependent upon what he's done, but he just, I want, Lord, I want you to remember that. And when other people give thanks to God, man, does he remember it? Constantly being reminded of the good that you've done. People are giving thanks on that behalf. That's considered a revenue in Paul's book. It's a considered a revenue in Scripture. But then in addition to that, uh, he says it also will lead the believers in Jerusalem to sell, in Jerusalem itself to give glory to God for having provided for their needs. So Paul and his co-workers are going to give thanks to God for what the Corinthians have done, and then the, the, the believers in Jerusalem are going to give glory to God for how he has provided for their needs through the Corinthians as instruments, as tools, as stewards of his property. Again, that's considered a revenue. But then lastly, verse 14, Paul says that these believers in Jerusalem also will long for the Corinthians and pray for them because of the surpassing grace of God administered by them. So there's a reciprocity here between the the goodness that you're giving to them and the goodness they're giving in return. Now they're praying for you. Now they're expressing love to you, longing for you in that sense. In fact, there's there's a passage in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. The Lord says this, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Sow righteousness, reap love. What, what greater blessing is there in the kingdom of heaven than love? And by investing in righteous things, you reap love. Uh, it, it's interesting. Um, uh, so I'm a part of a ministry uh, that teaches... Um, classes down in different parts of South America, Central America. And I got a call from the head of the ministry a couple weeks ago. Very surprising. Uh, like the big guy who like runs the whole thing. And just said, I want to thank you for teaching and, and doing all these things and blah, blah, blah. 
But he, he also said, I want to thank the person in your church who helped the church in Cartagena in Colombia to begin a process of looking to build a new building. He said, it meant so much to them that they reached out to me and, and shared all that. And he said, I wanted to reach out to you to tell you how thankful they are. And I was, I was sitting in my car on the way home from something, and I was like, who is this? <laughs> you know, I was like, and he told me his name. I can't even pronounce it. Noah Acosta, I think, is, is how it's pronounced. Um, but he's, he's the guy who started the whole ministry 40 years ago. Gave me a personal call because someone in my church had blessed them so much, they had to, they had to share it. And then he had to share it. And then I had to share it with the person who came <laughs> in that regard. So at least four people, four different groups of people are giving thanks because of this one act of love. Who wouldn't want that? You know? Uh, Ellen and I were talking this morning. So it's amazing what I use in sermon illustrations when I don't even think about using sermon illustrations. Ellen and I were talking this morning. In case you want to know what pastors talk about right before they go to church in the morning, we were talking about Jimmy Buffett <laughs> and Margaritaville. <laughs> And uh, Ellen had just read something that morning about uh, Jimmy and how he regretted so much that pretty much every concert became a drunken orgy for whoever came to his concerts and that he was promoting alcoholism for many generations of, of America, you know. And he, and, and, he, and he became a multimillionaire through that one song, you know, and through others, I'm assuming as well. But, but he regretted that, that that's his legacy. That's what he's known for. And even, you know, he, he passed away yesterday, I think. Um, I would hate to know that that's my legacy in life, that I encouraged everybody to drink as much as they can and lose their flip-flops and look for other concoctions to help them hang on. Um, it's, a, it's a catchy song, I have to admit. But at the same time, is that how you want to go out? Is that your legacy? I, I certainly, and I asked her, is it, did he become a believer? Did he, we don't, I don't know the rest of the story. I'll keep searching. That's what we'll do the rest of the day. No, um, but, the, um, but literally, what's happening here is Paul saying, you know, your, your whole life here is a steward of God's grace. Does it count for anything? What have you invested in? What have you given? That's what, you're, that's what you're remembered for. That's what you do in that sense. The Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 6, he says this, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be poured into your lap. So there's all sorts of blessings, all sorts of revenues that come in, uh, but this aspect of love is the greatest of them, that, that somehow your sowing of righteousness has caused greater love amongst the brothers to God, to you, to others, all the above. Now, I imagine there's some here who think, well, that doesn't really change my mind. <laughs> Those don't sound like all that great of a blessings, you know. Again, if, I, if that is your response, I say, well, that's probably because you're thinking mainly from an earthly perspective. You're not thinking it thinking through it from a, a heavenly perspective. But, but I will tell you this, God speaks to people with earthly mindsets to try to get them to cross over, if you will, to the heavenly perspective. In Malachi chapter 3, he comes out and he, he, he basically tests us in this regard. He says, you know, I want you to try it. Just test it. He said, I want you to try to give sacrificially in some way or another and see if I won't open the very gates, the windows of heaven, and pour them out upon you. You don't believe it, give it a shot. And in fact, uh, Doug Kelly, in the book that was written by him, uh, it's a commentary on, on this book of the Bible in Second Corinthians. Uh, he had also shared that uh, a man who came to church one Sunday, who was an unbeliever, had heard uh, some 
text in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and responded and actually tried to give something in his monetary wealth uh, to some other people and blah, blah, blah. And he was so enlivened by it, so encouraged by it that he considered the claims of Christ more, became a believer within a few weeks. God had poured out the blessings of heaven merely by him seeking to try to obey this one principle. Now, again, I can't, I can't say that every person ever gives is going to become a Christian or, or, or vice versa, or that you're going to get all this money. But he says, test him on it. See if this will not return to you in many, many blessings. Now, the, the problem is, and I think that's what we need to know more than anything else, the problem is never the lack of funds. It's not that you never have enough to give. The problem is always lack of faith. always comes down to that. In every aspect of Christianity, it always comes down to a lack of faith of whether or not we truly believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him and obey Him. If we believe that, then we'll believe in these heavenly blessings as well. And that's where I think Charles Dickens' novel, A, Christian, a Christmas Carol, really veers off course badly. So again, A Christmas Carol, we think of carols normally as songs that we sing at Christmas time, right? We think of uh, uh, maybe a poem or, or words of a song, but it's about Christ, right? A Christmas Carol. It's supposed to be about Christ. Well, that's one word you'll not find in the Christmas Carol at all. And I love Charles Dickens, don't get me wrong, but he doesn't mention Christ in this book at all. It's a conversion story without Christ. It's a conversion without the gospel. At first, he's a Scrooge, and then he begins to give when his heart is melted toward his brother, his fellow man. Again, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if he doesn't do it out of love for God, he doesn't do it out of love for the gift that he's received in Christ, it means nothing. You can give away all your wealth, what does 1 Corinthians 13 say? And it mounts to nothing apart from love. Love for God first and for man second. And so Paul ends this passage not just by saying, hey, go try it and see what happens. But he ends it with thanksgiving. Again, verse 15 of our text, he, he tells us that he's, he's giving praise to God for this inexpressible gift. What is he talking about? He's talking about the gift of Christ. This is what has started the whole thing. In fact, uh, we're, it, this is the last segment on giving in, in, in 2 Corinthians. We'll start a different section next week. But uh, he ends where he started. In 2 Corinthians 8, he begins in, in 8 by talking about what Christ has done for us. Verse 9 of chapter 8 is the, the pivotal passage that, that sort of centers us in all of what God is saying here. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become poor rich. He's saying because he understands this inexpressible gift that's been given by God, he now understands how he can serve in the same way as a steward of God, sharing that same grace with others, that through even aspects of making himself poorer, he can make others richer, growing closer in love with God, closer in understanding the things of God, at least considering the claims of Christ and going from there. What a difference it makes when a church understands the gospel of Christ. They become givers. They become sharers. They become lovers of God and of their fellow man. When that happens, it's a glorious thing. But it has to take a different vision. It has to take a heavenly mindset of this economy and not just the earthly perspective that we typically have. It takes a, a different vision entirely than just life under the sun. So I pray that all of us would grow with spiritual eyes to see it, that we would take up this better vision and be willing and cheerful and zealous 
to do the good that God has called us to in the name of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we naturally have foolishness bound up in our heart. We naturally are prone to sin, prone to wonder. We naturally don't understand the deeper truths of God. We, we're happy at times to drink the milk when we should be chewing the meat. Lord, we, we pray that you continue to help us to meditate upon these greater blessings, that we would understand that this is not a uh, this is not a ploy by the Apostle Paul to try to get people to give against their will. He's trying to help them to understand heavenly things. Lord, we pray that we would grasp these heavenly things, that we would grasp the Maker of heaven and earth to the extent that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord, that we would know you, that we would love you, we would serve you as good stewards, and that we would enter into the pleasure of our master's house, knowing, Lord, that what we have done is for your name, for your glory, for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus.